You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Own nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others. So love fulfills the requirements of God's law. This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living because we belong to the day. We must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Just back it up one verse into last week, verse 7, and I'll read that to give us some context, all right? Ignore the little paragraph break there. That's that God didn't inspire that. It's a little bit unhelpful um, in this case. But let's read... Um, why don't we go back to verse 6? Here's what he says. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding. So this is his burden for the people of the church. If you owe debts, you've got to pay them. Um, some people through church history, some whole denominations, other individuals have taken this as an injunction against borrowing money, that we should never borrow, we should never be in debt. No credit cards, no mortgages. Now, that, that's one application from this text, and, and you can go that way if, if that's where your conscience leads you. Um, I, I think he's saying because you're in debt, you need to pay your debts. He assumes that we'll be in debt from time to time, indebted to others, and whether it's indebted on account of our taxes or mortgages or loans or anything else, the point is you've got to pay them. You've got to pay those things down. You can't avoid them, wriggle out of them, you can't lie on your tax return, right? None of these things are the way Christians should operate. We, when it comes to our financial dealings, we should be so transparent that we don't care if the government wants to audit us. Apart from the inconvenience, we're not worried because we're not trying to dodge anything. We hear God calling us, pay your debts. And so he says, every debt you owe, whether it's respect or finance, make sure you pay it apart from one debt. There's one debt that you can never pay. The rest of verse 8 let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So he says, you, you know, it's possible, I was speaking to someone after the service today who was elated because they just paid down this long-standing debt. 
And, and they weren't due to pay it down for a couple of years, but they took this passage seriously, and as they were able to pay it down, they did it, and there was a great sense of liberty in that. So there's, there's those debts that we can accrue and then pay down, but there's one that we can never pay off in its entirety, and that's our debt to love one another. You can never give enough love that you don't need to love anymore. And so Paul transitions from this sort of sphere of economics into the sphere of church relationships, and he says, as we love one another, as we, as we pay that debt of love that can never be fully paid, we fulfill the law. So he has in mind here, joining these two passages together, he has these two laws in mind. There's civil law, which is obey government, pay your taxes, right? And then there is the law of God, which is love one another. You will fulfill civil law by following its dictates, and you'll fulfill God's law by loving one another. That's, an, that's a pretty big statement. That's an all-encompassing general statement. If you want to fulfill the law, then you need to love one another. And he, and he explains a little bit about how you do that in the next couple of verses, all right? Verse 9 and 10. Let's go together. He says, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be. Just all, all the commandments are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And if you've been around church for any length of time or if you've read the Gospels, you know that Paul is just taking exactly what Jesus said and re-saying it in his own words. So Jesus, in Matthew 22, this is what he says. As someone comes to him, trying to, probably trying to trap him, test him, catch him out, right? He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is huge. This is Jesus, who, who, who is the author of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. And you have Paul, who is a Pharisee among Pharisees, right? A, a great learned man of the Lord, probably in all likelihood memorized the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. And, and you've got both of these guys who are, who are saturated in law and prophets, saturated in the Old Covenant, saying, you can do it all by loving God and loving each other. You can fulfill the whole law by loving God and loving one another. Now, my experience of this, trying to figure this out for myself, and my experience of Christian culture at large today, is that really like the guy who comes to Jesus and says, what's the bottom line? Like, what's the greatest thing? What's the, what's the most important thing? We're prone to do this as well. We're, we like simplification. 
We like bottom line economics. Like, if you're boiling it all down, just give me the, give me the one sentence thing. And we're prone to kind of splitting and saying, well, what, I need to do this rather than that. It helps us to make sense of the world. We, we tend to look for patterns. And, and, and so you have Christians who can tend towards law over love. And you have other Christians who tend towards love over law. And what Jesus is saying and what Paul is reiterating is that you don't have to choose. In fact, to choose is to create a false dichotomy. These things are not opposed to one another. They're left hand, right hand. They go together. So we need to understand that, that love gives life to the law and the law gives substance and structure to love. These things go together. And whenever you chase one of them down to the exclusion of the other, you end up in one of two errors. People tend towards, when they pursue law over love, they tend towards fundamentalism and legalism. And those who pursue love over law tend towards licentiousness and antinomianism. That is, um, there are no rules. You kinda, you, you're free. And both of those things are great errors. Both of them will lead you away from, not closer to, the Lord Jesus. So here's how I, I, I think we can think about it, right? A little image for you. Both my kids, especially my daughter, who is high octane, right? High energy. If you saw her this morning, she, you probably just saw a blur and her screaming something at you, okay? This is high energy. She, they both love kites. And it's, um, it's, it works in this area because all of the wind comes here. Like Australia just saves up all its wind and, and says, there you go, Caroline Springs. We had no idea before we moved here because we lived in a place with hills and trees and the wind kind of gets suffocated. But here, it's just like open slather wind. Are you with me? You understand. Especially at the height of summer, you get that hot wind, bakes everything. And so perfect kite weather, right? Warmth and wind, kites. Kites love it. And so our kids have tons of kites. They need tons of kites because kites always break. And um, they're very fragile. Um, but here's, here's, here's an image for you to think about. I think our understanding of love is often that if, if we just released love to, 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 to take love where it wants to be taken, to lead the way, right? The heart wants what it wants. If we can just follow love, then we'll be free. That the problem with kites is that they're restricted by a string. If they were just let go, they would fulfill their full potential. But you know that that's wrong, right? What happens if you cut a string from a kite? It soars up into the hemisphere. No, if you cut a string from a kite, it immediately drops to the ground and explodes. Well, maybe not explodes, unless you've got explosives attached to it, which isn't, that's not a kite anymore, that's a weapon. But if you... It just, it, it breaks. I think the same is true about love. We can be tempted to think, if only we could sever love from its limitations, we, if we could be free. All you need is love. Let's, free love, right? But the truth is, and you know this from your experience, we know from history, all of history, 
that as soon as you sever the substance, structure-giving law from love, you don't get a kite that flies free. You get a bunch of broken sticks and paper mache. And that's what we need to know, that, that, that the law is like that taut string that actually doesn't restrict but enables the flight of love. We need both. We need law and we need love, and love fulfills the law. Now, here's what just happened. I started talking about Christianity being about loving God and loving one another, and about 80% of people just went, just stayed in bed because you know this already this is like the first thing they teach you at Sunday school you know this already it's kind of it's like in the bylaws of Christianity this is all we know this but do we really know it like I know we know it but do we actually know it to the extent that it affects us affects our behavior affects our thinking? Do we really know this to be true? That love fulfills the law. That all of God's commands are summed up in this one injunction to love one another. I think that we tend to turn off when we start hearing about this stuff because we just assume that we know it. Which is why I think Paul wants to add some urgency. He wants to add some urgency. He wants you to wake up. So he continues in verse 11. He says this, Do this, this loving one another thing, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. He wants you to do this, this loving one another to fulfill the law. He wants you to do it, understanding something really important. He wants you to understand that the time is now. This is a time of great significance. I love, I've said this before, but in Greek, they have so many different words for the same thing. You know, we talk about love, and we don't know if you mean love spaghetti or love Ferraris or love your kids. Like, it's just, it's all one. They have four words for love, at least. When it comes to the time, they've got a word for the, the time is 27 to 12, and they've got a, a word for now is the time, a time of significance, timely time. And that's this word, kairos, now is the time. This is significant. You've got to wake up. You need to know this, Christians. There's a sense of urgency here. This is a, a pressing matter. Do this loving one another thing, understanding the timely time, the kairos time, the hour has already come for you to wake up. Wake up and realize that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. When is it coming? I don't know. Now you can be a little bit foolish and take all of the third Psalms and then 
take all the second verses from the third Psalms and put them in a crossword and then divide by 12. And try, like you can try and do that and make a chart and say, and here, like Trump is president. So you can do all that, which is foolish. Or you can just do what Paul says. There's less time now than there used to be. That's his chart. There's less time now than there used to be. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That's what you need to know. These are the last days. When Paul wrote this out, it was the last days. Today is one of the last days. And sometimes I like to say, you know, I, it would be depressing because I really want to get to the, the conclusion, but I might not get there. Jesus might come and say, that's it. Roll up human history. The day of judgment is here. And Paul says, because that is true, you need to have a sense of urgency. You need to wake up. Wake up from your slumber, Christian, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The question you need to ask yourself right now is, am I slumbering? Am I slumbering? Am I sleepwalking through this minute moment in time that is your life? The image I like to think of is like, this green square is my life and my eternal life extends out to Adelaide, right? So he's saying, on this square, are you slumbering? Because that would be profoundly dangerous. Why dangerous? Because slumbering, slumbering Christians can slumber their way out of the kingdom. Well, that's a big call. It's true. A couple of years ago, you guys might know, I was um, having some health problems, and um, they were manifesting themselves mainly in just exhaustion and um, I thought it was just having young kids and whatever, but I would, um, I would come home from work and jump on the floor and play with the kids, and almost every day it would drive Renee crazy because she would come in to me, meant, I'm meant to be supervising these kids, making sure they don't eat each other and Lego and stuff, and I was just asleep. Not just asleep, but dead to the world. And it was so frustrating. And then a couple of times at red lights, I would fall asleep and then just like wake up as I rolled into the intersection. And I don't know what was going on. So we went to the GP and um, Renee said, you know, he started snoring a heap right now. And I thought, yeah, it's because I'm exhausted. That's why I'm snoring. But then it turns out she was like, oh, yeah, you got sleep apnea. And so sleep apnea is when, you fall, when, you, when you're asleep, you stop breathing. And God has designed your brain so brilliantly that you're your brain knows that you're not breathing and it wakes you up just enough to start breathing again, but it means that you never get to REM sleep. You never get any sleep, essentially, not, nothing of quality. And so you have to get treated for it. With I've got a device that I wear at night, a mouth guard, that keeps my airway open. Either you do that or you die of a heart attack, heart disease normally, because if you don't sleep, you die. And so that was what was going on for me. And the thing is, right, that slumbering, that that dopiness, that, 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 um, that um, sleepfulness, 
right? That was driven by a fault in my system. It was a fault. And I think it's the same, the same is true for us in the Christian life, right? If you're slumbering, if you're prone to falling asleep, it's because there's something out of whack. There's a fault. You're meant to be awake. You're meant to be vigilant. You're meant to know that any minute the sky is going to split and Jesus is going to come on the clouds, right? In judgment and restoration. And instead, I don't know, maybe this is a particular Australian thing, but it's like, oh, I prefer a banana lounge, really. And so he's speaking directly to us when he says, wake up. Now, I said before that it is possible for you to slumber and sleepwalk your way out of the kingdom. So everyone needs to hear this really clearly. This is a direct warning. It's not a warning coming from me. It's a warning coming from the Lord Jesus. This is exactly how he says it in Matthew 25. All right, He tells this parable. He says, at that time, right, at the end times, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. The ten virgins are God's people. The bridegroom is Jesus. He's coming back and they're waiting for him. That's exactly what's going on today. Five of them were foolish. Five of them were wise. He wants you to pick your five. He wants you to pick your team. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, right? Sound familiar? 2,000 years, maybe 10,000 years, maybe 2,000 years, all right? A long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. They were slumbering. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, people through the centuries have tried to take every little word of Jesus' parables and get all the meaning out of them and allegorize them and figure out, again, it's charts. and Forget that. He's told you the point of the story. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day of the hour. Next time you hear anyone, it's normally someone with a Southern American accent telling you that this is the day and this is the hour, just remind them Jesus said, you don't know. Which is why you need to keep watch. That's the point. If you don't keep watch, if you don't stay vigilant, then you might miss his coming. You might slumber and sleepwalk your way out of the kingdom, out of the wedding banquet. So with a sense of urgency, urgency, 
Paul goes on, verse 12, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So, if that's true, if Jesus and Paul aren't lying or misguided, if that's reality, then what do you do? Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. That's what you do. What's being set up for us here is is not a false dichotomy, but a true one. You have a fork in the road before you right now, right now. A fork in the road. And one side of the path leads to the kingdom of darkness. And the other side leads to the kingdom of light. That's the purpose of nearly all of Jesus' parables, certainly in Matthew 25. It's this or that. It's these five virgins or those. It's sheep and goats. He wants you to know this is reality. This is not a fairy tale or a fable. This is the reality before you. You have a fork in the road and it's up to you. It's up to you which path you choose. Paul says... Step out of darkness and into light. Take off deeds of darkness. Put on the arm of Christ. Clothe yourself with Christ. Jesus, Paul, John, the beloved disciple in his letter, 1 John, chapter 1, he says this, This is the message we have heard from Jesus and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's what walking in the light looks like. So what, what is he not saying? He's not saying walking in the light means walking in sinlessness. Or perfection. That's where some people have gone with this. If you're not walking in sinless perfection, then you're in darkness. If that was true, then you don't need the blood of Jesus to purify you from all sin. It's illogical. So yes, yes, in the light we continue to stumble and fall. Yes, we carry around with us the the taintedness of our sin. But we walk in the light where we notice darkness. We put it to death. We continually take off that which is dark and put on the armor of light. This is what it means to be a disciple. Unless that's what you're doing, then you are not a disciple. That's exactly what he just said, right? If you confess Jesus, if you stand at the front and raise your hands, if you pray, but you walk in darkness, all of that is a lie. You're lying. You're certainly lying to everyone else. You may, in fact, be lying to yourself. This is why he has such urgency in this. If you're lying to yourself, you need to know that you're lying to yourself so that you can stop lying to yourself. Paul's going to give some specific examples of what it looks like to live in the dark, all right? And this is not an exhaustive list. You know why he doesn't give exhaustive lists? Because he knows you, and he knows that you will go through the list, find the one thing that's not on the list, and then jump into doing that 
right? He knows. He knows you. So this is not exhaustive. You apply it to yourself with your own examples. You know what they are. But he gives you these, verse 13 and 14. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, as in the light, not in carousing. Another way of saying that is carousing is partying where there's orgies, all right? Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. You just insert whatever you need to insert into that passage. There are deeds of darkness that all of us find ourselves participating in, not just occasionally but habitually, that lead us away from the light. It's like we we love darkness more than light because the light exposes our darkness. The light, light exposes our sin. So you need to be attuned to where darkness lurks in your life, where you're prone to wander into darkness. I read a statistic of this last week that blew my mind and made me very sad and very convicted. This Barna study, Barna, the big research um, institution in the US, they took all the Christians who are really professing Christians, you know, like who actually go to church and serve and proclaim Jesus as Lord, and they found that one third of professing Christians view pornography every day. Let that sink in. One third of professing Christians view pornography every day. One third of that number are women. So this is not a man-woman thing. This is all of us. The kingdom of darkness has carved out for itself a new stronghold in our time. And many, many are enslaved to that kingdom. And Jesus says, if you continue to walk in darkness, you will wander out of the kingdom of light. And John says, if you live in darkness and proclaim that you love Jesus, you're lying. The kingdom of pornography, that kingdom has no light in it. People go there searching for light. There's an old saying, every man who walks into a brothel is searching for God. The same is true of everyone who wanders into a a porn site. They're looking for God. They're looking for some hope. They're looking for some light. They're looking for some relief. They're looking for some joy or pleasure. And there is none there. It's not there. You can go there every day. You will not find it there. There is fleeting pleasures and no lasting joy. It is an industry built on the backs of slaves, sex slaves and human trafficking. It, it by its very existence, degenerates souls made in the image of God. It is dark. And many of us live there.
God, help us. But we're not without hope. We're not without hope. Hear these words. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that these words that I'm about to speak from your word would drag some of us out of that kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, that we would, be deliv- that we would have deliverance here today because there is victory in the cross. Verse 13 to 14. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves, even now, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. It's tempting for us to think when we're being made aware of our sin and our shame as some of us have been in this last few minutes. When we're made aware of that, it's tempting for us to think that there's no way out of it. My favourite parable that Jesus tells is the parable of the lost son because I just relate to him so much. What just happened here in this room is that some people, just maybe for the first time, came to the realisation that they're living in a pigsty, starving to death as they throw pea pods to the pigs. And it's tempting for us to think, like that son did, that there's no way back for us. At the most we can hope for is to be a slave again, but we'll, we'll never be a son why, why would God want us back? So much filth. Why would he want us? Why would he want us? I'll tell you a story to finish up. It's a story of a lost son who came home. It's not the story that Jesus told. It's a story of a, a Christian guy named Augustine. Augustine, if you're American. Augustine was a a guy who lived in the 4th century. He was very privileged. The son of a Roman official, pagan, and a Christian mother named Monica. And uh, he grew up in great privilege. He also grew up with great powers of intellect. He was just smarter than everyone else. And... um, one of the reasons that he rejected Christianity early on was that he was too smart for Christianity. And he saw all the, ma- the masses were becoming Christians, not the intellects. The other reason he didn't want to become a Christian was because he was having so much fun. He, was, he lived a licentious life, very promiscuous. Like he recounts stories. He, he wrote a book, which is a classic, called Confessions, where he, it's a bit of a memoir, and he, t- he talks about this life that he lived of just pleasure, Gratifying the desires of the flesh, right? Orgies, drunkenness, the whole thing. But there was something within him that didn't feel right about this life that he was living. And 
and the light started to break into the darkness. First of all, as he saw some really smart people becoming Christians, as he tells the story of him becoming a Christian, by this point, after being born in Algeria in northern Africa, he'd moved to Milan, and he, he heard the story of this guy named Anthony who had become a Christian by reading the Bible. He read the Gospel and, and heard Jesus say to the rich young ruler, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. He, he, heard, he heard that verse, and he was converted. Like the power of the Word just changed him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, right? And, that, and, and he was confused by that because this guy was smart and a Christian. And so he came to see some of the error of his ways and he came to see that, that, that the path of light was the true path. It was the path of following Christ and obedience to Christ and discipleship, but he couldn't change himself. He couldn't change himself and part of him didn't want to change. He prayed this famous prayer, which I have prayed myself, which was... Lord, help me chaste, but not yet. That is, Lord, help me be sexually pure, but not yet. I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying it, so one day we'll do that, and in the meantime, I'll keep doing, doing what I'm doing. Like, I, I have prayed that prayer. And that's how he felt. He was at war with himself. This is, I'll just read you a little bit. Please don't tune out, because all of this is gold. Do you know about this guy, Augustine? He's gold. Hey, here's a, here's a fact. Well, it may not be a fact, but it's my fact. I don't think there's anyone outside of Jesus and the disciples, apostles, who's had a bigger impact on universal, the universal church than Augustine. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, he's still impacting you because most of Western civilization politics, ethics, is built on his work. He wrote a book called City of God. Without that, we don't have a lot of what we have now. Right? He is a phenomenon. So just don't tune out. Listen to this guy. He says, My inner self was a house divided against itself. In the heat of fierce conflict, which I had stirred up against my soul, in my heart, I turned upon uh, Alapius. That's his friend. My looks betrayed the commotion in my mind as I exclaimed, What is the matter with us? What is the meaning of this story? These men who have become Christians have not had our schooling, yet they stand up and storm the gates of heaven while we, for all our learning, lie here groveling in this world of flesh and blood. He's like, I can't will myself to be a Christian. I can't just want it enough. Something has to happen. Something's gotta, God's got to change me somehow. And a lot of this, this feeling of helplessness was because he had walked so long in the kingdom of darkness that he felt burdened and overwhelmed by his sin. So he goes on. <coughs> by the way, if you're taking notes, this is book 8 and verse 12, or section 12. He says this, I felt that I was still the captive of my sins. And in my misery, I kept crying, how long shall I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of all my ugly sins at this moment? I was asking myself these questions, weeping all the while with the most bitter sorrow in my heart, when all at once I heard the singing voice of a child in a nearby house. 
Whether it was a voice of a boy or girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. At this I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open up my book of Scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. See, God blesses even that foolish way of reading the Bible. Read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. And then he goes on to talk, tell the story of this Anthony who picked up the Gospels and, and was converted by reading them. So I hurried back to the place where Alipus, Alipus, Alip, Alipius, Alipius was sitting. For when I stood up to move away, I had put down the book containing Paul's epistles. I seized it and opened it up and in silence read the first passage on which my eyes fell. Romans 13 Verse 13 to 14, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries, rather arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so, for in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. That is the power of God's Spirit moving through His Word. It dispels darkness. All of us have darkness. We have darkness in our past. We have darkness in corners of our hearts that we dare not face. And the power of the Spirit through His Word is to dispel it. I want you to know this morning that there is victory to be had. There's victory to be had over sin, even entrenched sin. There is always a pathway out of the darkness into the light. In the time of temptation, God's Word assures us you will always have a pathway out of it, even when you feel overcome with lust or temptation or whatever it is. There's always a pathway out. And in the midst of entrenched, ongoing, habitual sin, there's always a pathway out of the darkness into the kingdom of light. There's so much more to be said and way much more for us to do in our own lives, right? So... We don't have time to do it now. You need others, brothers, sisters from this church or some other church, from your small group or some other small group, whatever. You need them to help you. You need them to keep you accountable. You need them to know all of your darkest regions of your heart. You need to know there's power and victory in the cross of Jesus. You need to know that his blood cleanses you from all sin. You need to do something. One thing you could do is in a minute when we stand and sing, you could come and pray with people. There's people here to pray with you every single week and every single person needs to pray with those people. These are people who you can trust with your darkness. I've trusted these people with my darkness. 
And I've learned that these people who make up our prayer team are so in tune with the loving heart of God that when the prodigal comes to them, they're not put off by his smell, by his filthy rags. They're not. They embrace him and put a robe on his back and a ring on his finger. These people want to pray for you. I spoke to someone last week and they were talking about something they were having difficulty with and I said, you should have gone and prayed with those people after the sermon, during the songs. And they said this. Everyone look right at me. This is what they said. They said, I didn't go and do that because then it would be obvious to everyone that I was struggling. I was like, what? What what is this fantasy land that you live in where you don't think that everyone else is struggling as well? Everyone in this church is struggling. That non-struggling Christian, if he exists, isn't a Christian. To be a Christian is to struggle. To be a disciple is to struggle. Disciple, discipline, struggling, striving, right? Putting things to death. Tearing away from darkness to walk into the light. That's what it is. So just join the rest of us in struggling and have someone pray for you that God might aid you in your struggle. It's such a rookie error for a preacher to say, I'm finishing now and then spend 10 minutes on something. I'm sorry. I make that all the time. I'm still a beginner. Let me just conclude by summing things up. I wrote this out. I think this is a, bit, a, summer, a good summary or a, a decent summary of this passage. Making all of life all about Jesus, friends. It means loving one another for that fulfills the law. It means realizing that these are the last days for that encourages vigilance. And it means walking in the light with Christ for there is true joy, freedom and life. Let's pray together. Father, we want true joy, freedom, and life. Not the fleeting pleasures of sin and darkness that lead to destruction. We want true joy, freedom, life. May we find it in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Enable us, Lord, by your Spirit, enable us to walk with you. We believe that we are sons and daughters, once far off, who have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We believe that we were once lost and that we are now found. We believe that we were once slaves to sin, now sons and daughters of the Most High King. And yet so many of us prefer to live in the slaves' quarters We spend so much of our time in the ghetto of sin. It's dark. And it diminishes, it diminishes our dignity. It diminishes our, our, our image-bearing nature that you gave us. It tarnishes it. It, it, it darkens it. Heavenly Father, I believe 
I've come to believe that every command of yours is for our good. That every command maximizes life and liberty. That's the kite string that enables us to fly. So I pray that we would hear these words this morning to put off that which is dark and to put on the armor of light. That we would hear them as commands, not that diminish our liberty or diminish our enjoyment, but that lead us into those things. Grant us true freedom. Please keep us close to Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen.